Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast. I'm John McMahon, and I'm joined today by the big man, John Kaplan. Say hi, big man. How you doing, buddy? Good to see you. Doing good. Yeah, everything all right? Everything's good. All right. I love our our guest today. All right. You know her. She's the one and only. She's our special guest today, the super talented Ann Gary, who's actually joining us for the third time on Revenue Builders. Previously, Ann joined us for an episode on meeting the economic buyer and another fabulous episode on the difference between a coach and a champion. If you haven't heard those two episodes, I'd suggest you take a listen because there's definitely some valuable content in those two podcasts. That said, welcome back, Ann Gary. How are you? Oh, great to be with both of you today. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> great to have you back, Ann. Those other two episodes, everyone really loved them. In fact, in getting to the Economic Buyer podcast we did a few months ago, you and I discussed the importance of quantifying the business value of the solution, the importance of defining results in increased revenue, decreased cost, decreased risk for the customer, or a metric that directly impacts your customer's job measures or the company measures. And in this podcast, Dan, let's dig into two critical items in the sales process. First, defining the decision criteria during the sales process to ensure that you win the validation event. And second, the importance of quantifying the technical merits of your solution into quantifiable business value for your customer's organization. So just to be clear for the audience, you know, many times the validation event could be called a POC or a proof of concept. Other times it's called the POV or proof of value. Since one of our goals is to quantify value through the process in this episode, let's use POV or proof of value terminology today, right? So with that as a backdrop, and let's start by defining for the audience what we mean by decision criteria. Okay, so I, I define the decision criteria as a specific set of requirements, standards, and real importantly, the quantifiable metrics that the customer uses to evaluate the potential solutions and making a purchase decision. Um, with that definition, though, the importance of the decision criteria is winning in the proof of value lies in the ability of the salesperson to align to the customer's needs and expectations you know, with their solution. So with that, by helping to create the decision criteria with the customer, you know, salespeople can demonstrate the value and relevance of their product and increase the likelihood of a successful POV. And ultimately, you know, they're really going to close the deal for higher price points. Okay. Good definition. In fact, so what you're saying is it's a defined set of requirements and standards that the customer is going to use to evaluate all p potential solutions to solve the pain. Um, let's go deeper on a few points people need to understand about the decision criteria. So first, to be clear, 
for whatever product you sell, there's no cookie cutter decision criteria for all your customers. And that's because the criteria will be unique to each customer and their specific use case within the customer. So the criteria may also be influenced, as Anne said, by different factors like industry standards, company objectives, and use case pain points. So we need to identify these different factors in the customer's business and tailor the specific decision criteria for each customer. Now that That's right, John. But what's critical to win a POV is to uniquely differentiate your solution from your competitors. And by understanding what the customer values the most, you have to highlight those strengths of the product that align with the business outcomes and demonstrate why your solution is superior to the competition and other alternatives that they might be able to use. So I remember when we worked together, you would describe the decision criteria as a bullseye on a dartboard. And that visual just sticks with me over the years, you know, of working with other sales folks in these situations. Well, that's good. I hope it hasn't haunted you, but for sure. The bu- <laughs> Maybe a the little. Bullseye. <laughs> I'm still haunted. <laughs> well, no, the bullseye is like thinking of like the criteria that's specifically suited to your unique product differentiators and not the competition. So if you're in the bullseye, then they're buying what you're selling. As it creeps outside the bullseye, your chances of losing increase because you're going off of somebody else's differentiators. So Cap, you know, I mentioned unique differentiation, but can you talk a little bit about the different types of differentiation? Yeah, that's a that's a great point. I think, you know, you should think of differentiation along kind of like three avenues. Unique, which means that only you can do it. It's got to add value to the customer. So it's got to be, it's got to be valuable. So only you can do it. And your job is to get that into the decision criteria and you win every time. Uh, But as we all know, uh, in this competitive world that we live in, and and by the way, unique differentiation becomes tomorrow's comparative differentiation, because if it's any good, it's going to get copied. So we're, we're, we're mostly dealing in a world of comparative differentiation. I think that's where the game is really is really uh, played. Um, and what I mean by comparative differentiation is others say they can do it, but the way that you do it is better for the customer. And it could be examples of, you know, it's easier for the customer, it's less expensive, it's less risk, it's faster. But the way that you do that differentiation is better for the customer. And a lot of technology companies, it has to do with like speed. Many times it's speed. Somebody says they can do something, it takes them three days to do it. It takes us 10 minutes to do it. That is where comparative differentiation lives. And last thing I want to add is um, you got to be really, really good at setting traps for the competition. You don't set traps for customers, you set traps for the competition. So you think about your differentiator and then you ask yourself, so what if, I like the concept of so what, so what if the customer doesn't have that? And I prepare this way. So I say, so what if the customer doesn't have that? What bad things will happen? And then what that allows me to do is go right into discovery and ask customers about bad things that happen when those situations manifest themselves. And when the customer tells me, I have the ability to say, well, it sounds like Mr. and Mrs. Customer, that's required that 
that capability is required for what we're talking about. And they say, yeah, absolutely. And then the crux move is to just add it into the decision criteria and say, do you mind if I just add that into the decision criteria? So I want to st- uh, speak a little bit about the how. I know it's not that simple, but it's a really, really critical point. Uh, can you give us another example of how you set the set a trap? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's all about the discovery questions. Uh, great companies prepare their sellers with the differentiators. Either they're unique or they're comparative. And then there's some that are holistic, which is kind of like more about the company, how the company performs, the state of the company, the experience of the company, what have you. Those are those kind of come in play at the end of a sales cycle when a company's trying to make a, a you know a determination about whether or not they want to do business with you. So holistic kind of comes in at the end. But you can also have like a defensive strategy too, right, Cap? If you think that or know that every time I go up against this one competitor, they always bring up these one or two things about my yeah. product. So you can basically bring them up in front of the customer and set a trap for the competitor for when they walk in the room, because you've already discussed those things and you've already, you know, said why that's not going to work for this customer to solve their pain points. Yeah, I like that. And the last thing that I'll say on this one, um, I know I'm messing up the the order a little bit. Sorry about that. But the last thing that I'll say on this one is um, you have to be on the lookout for decision criteria that is in the competitor's language. And what I mean by that is you look at the decision criteria and it's clear that the competitor has inserted some functionality. Normally it's around a feature or a function. And what I find is because most sellers aren't good at this is that the customer really doesn't have an idea what that means. So all you have to do when you spot criteria like John's talking about that's written for the competition is you just have to ask the customer. I'm not saying they won't know it, but there's a high probability they won't. And you ask the customer, hey, tell me how that manifests itself into your environment. And a lot of times the customer will hem and haw. And then we're going to talk about it later. But you've got the ability to reprioritize that criteria and kind of flush that out. You don't embarrass the customer and go, hey, yeah, you're uh you're, uh, you know, our competitive seller was, uh, you know, just sticking criteria in there. You don't embarrass anybody. You just kind of move on. Yeah, but you can ask them a question also, Cap, because a lot of times what happens is the competition knows that you have an advantage over them. So they stop, start copying your terminology. Yep. But to your point, how it's done is completely different than the way in which you do it. So when you hear that the customer is using the same terminology, because maybe your competitor was in an account before you, you can ask them, well, tell me what you mean by X or Y or Z. And you'll find out that it's something completely different than the way you define that terminology. Yep. You have to make that clear distinction. I think another thing on that point though, is when the competition asks or actually inserts the criteria, I also want to know who within the company I'm calling on was listening to the competition. Yeah decided to insert the criteria, right? So it helps you understand the political landscape as well of who has influence within the company to get that done. Yeah, we definitely need to talk about that in depth a little bit later, yeah. For sure. So, so, I mean, this all makes sense, obviously. I think that the big thing is if the criteria is specifically set to your product differentiators, then the customer is actually buying what you're selling. And I think, you know, John Cap said a lot about, you know, it doesn't have value to them. 
So, you know, you're going to be inside that bullseye that we were talking about a little earlier, but the opposite can be true. And I've seen plenty of situations where there's a lot of criteria. It's not in the bullseye, right? It's not forced ranked. I'll say that too, in terms of what's most important to the client actually is what you actually can deliver. And so what you find out is that you're outside of the bullseye, right? And and you have to be honest with yourself to know that so that you can go back and influence that criteria. So if you're outside the bullseye, they're not buying what you're selling. And we no, need to make each element that's outside your bullseye, your your chances of losing increase. Exactly. Yeah. So so um I think those are great points. And it, you know, just to summarize, if if we can't align our key product differentiators to the customer's pain points, then we know, as you said, they're not buying what we're selling. Right. There's so many opportunity coaching sessions that I've been involved with where we're discussing the decision criteria and a technical validation event, like a POC or POV or even trials, you know, for that matter. And in many cases, the decision criteria is just not formally defined. And that's what I'm talking about. Formally defining it, writing it down, force ranking it, making sure everybody understands it. Because it's not it if it's been defined and there's no quantification of what's being measured then that's another problem we're going to run into, right? We're going to have decision criteria. We're not going to know how they're measuring it. And they're not going to hold us accountable, you know, from A to B kind of vendor in the situation. So I think, Cap, what's been your experience with this? Well, I think we've all seen technical validation events executed without the criteria formalized and documented. And we know that that can cause major issues in the sales campaign. So I'm just going to talk about a couple of them. So first, if there's no criteria, How do you know what criteria the solution is being measured against? And if you don't formalize and document the criteria, then you're being analyzed against an unknown or moving target. Uh, The second point is, if the customer only verbalizes the criteria without formalizing and documenting it, this could open the door for more players to become involved in the selling process, which is going to create scope creep. And then the last point is, Um, Changes to the criteria might be made by the competitor's champion who may be stronger than your champion. And this can create criteria that's more favorable for the competition, which will result in you failing to win. I know we're going to dig into that a little bit. We are, you know, one thing I'd really like to dig into is something you talked about, which is scope creep. I see this happen a lot in these, you know, these uh, proof of value, proof of concept situations. Can you dig into what you mean by scope creep? Yeah, I think as um, we talk about, you know, more sellers entering the process, they all try to get their differentiators into the criteria. So that's what we're telling sellers to do. You influence your just differentiation into the criteria and you have a better chance of winning. Well, every seller is trying to do that. So it's a seller's job to get the criteria to be, as you guys are calling it, in their bullseye and then they can win. But You know, if other sellers are allowed to expand the criteria outside of the bullseye, it introduces more risk of losing the deal because now the customer may view other criteria as important. So any criteria uh, that includes some of the bullseye, but also other parts of the dartboards, so to speak, puts us at risk of losing the deal. And what I mean by that is when reps enter an account on day one, It's their job to enter the account with a compelling point of view. It shows they did their homework. So upon entering the account, we should be prepared to ask great discovery questions 
to identify and quantify pain, um, set traps that we talked about for the competition in order to establish and influence criteria that are both good for the customer, that's important, and more favorable for us, and make qualifying statements, as we always should do. Now, at the same time, we're looking to find coaches and champions to drive the conversation and criteria forward towards the bullseye. Uh, this is a lot, but there's so many issues that result from not executing this portion of the sales process, right? I mean, if you don't do this with discipline and rigor, one of the one of the most tragic ones we run into is if you execute the POV and you haven't locked all this down, the POV, you know, with the POV criteria, et cetera, and your solution is not selected. That is tragic. Why? Mm. Because it's it's nearly impossible to recover from a failed POV. Because you you cannot appeal to the key customer stakeholders of the economic buyer at that point. The evaluators can tell the economic buyer they've looked at your solution, they've evaluated it fairly against the you know the competition, and it simply did not meet the needs of the business. So you really set yourself up when you walk into these situations and you haven't defined this, and they can prove that they've actually done the the POV and used the criteria in writing, which doesn't align with their key product differentiators. Yeah, that's so true. And um, if you complain after a failed POV, it sounds like sour grapes. I mean, you agreed to play the game, then you played the game according to the rules of the game and you lost the game. So it's it's time for you to go home and lick your wounds and think about what you need to do to change in your next selling process. You know, I've had to make a number of these sales calls to the economic buyer after, you know, one of my reps lost the POV. And I can tell you, it just it sounds like you're disparaging the evaluation team yeah. and you have no recourse. Again, you know, you, you agreed to the rules, you played by the same rules as everyone and you lost. So even if you did it again and you appealed to the economic buyer and they were nice enough to say, let's do it again, by the same rules, you'd wind up losing again. That's why the first two stages of the sales process, discovery and scoping, you know, they're mission critical in setting the decision criteria. So, you know, with that said, let's go back in the sales process and talk about how and when the decision criteria is formulated in the process. Well, John, you mentioned this too, and the decision criteria is originally, it's formulated in the discovery stage, right? And if you think about, you document it in the scoping stage, that's really when you get to the details of it. But it should be semi-finalized with your champion and then certainly finalized with an economic buyer meeting. I can't imagine actually moving forward with doing a POV or POC without knowing that an economic buyer is going to be able to approve the budget and agree to perform you know, the POV. So I, I guess probably the biggest thing for me that comes out of this is it's it's really dangerous to invest in these kinds of situations when you don't have economic buyer approval. Yeah, and we talked about that um, for the audience. If you want to go back and listen to the episode we did with Ann on meeting the economic buyer, we talked about how the economic buyer is going to be very in interested in a quantifiable you know, business outcome from the POV. So there's a lot of really good content in that episode if you want to go ahead and listen to it. I love that episode because one of the things that I took away from it was you know, making sure that you're speaking the language of the economic buyer. Mm. And as it relates to decision criteria here, most times we are 
utilizing and interacting with the economic buyer on those positive business outcomes or the impact of the business that they're trying to achieve. And we are utilizing our champions, many times technical champions, to influence technical uh, criteria. So I thought you guys did a really, really good job in that podcast of making sure that you're speaking the language of the person that you, you know, you get delegated to those that you sound like. Right. And, um, and, and that can absolutely happen. So, so yes, I agree. Um, criteria should be formulated during the discovery stage and, and finalized during the scoping stage with your champion. But in reality, Ann, uh, there's many moving parts. Well, there really are. If you think about it, you know, the decision criteria may evolve significantly throughout the sales process. Customers gain more understanding, right? They start digging deeper into what the requirements are, including there are more and more people that get involved. You you might start a a situation where you think the proof of value might have six, 10 people involved. It might expand to 12 or 15 in some of these really complicated situations. So that's why we need to continuously monitor the decision criteria and make sure it's not shifting on you. Ensure the solution continues to align with the evolving decision criteria. And that's so right, Ann. The, you know, the decision criteria will often involve multiple stakeholders within the customer's organization. So we have to identify and engage with these key decision makers and influencers to understand their individual decision criteria and gain their support, you know, before the criteria is finalized. And, you know, in fact, every time we enter an account, the first question we should ask is, has anything changed in the criteria since the last time we spoke? And Johnny, you and I were talking, you know, earlier uh, uh, before this podcast about when something changes in the criteria is when your antennas really have to go up. Your antennas have to go up because it means that someone else is influencing the criteria. So you thought you had a really strong champion that was having influence in the account with the other stakeholders. And then you come back and say, hey, this was the decision criteria last time we spoke. It was these five items. Has anything changed since we spoke last time? They say, oh, yeah, we added these other two items. Well, you want to know, like, how did those other two items get in the criteria and why are they in the criteria? If we've narrowed down that these five differentiators we put in the criteria solve these five pain points, why are there another two? So sometimes you might have to ask, you know, why is it important to have this new element in the decision criteria? What pain point does it solve? Who thinks that that's important? So you have to get into the the how, the who, and the why that anything is in the criteria and why it's changed. And then you have to start to ask yourself, you know, maybe my champion's not as strong as I thought they they were. Maybe someone else in this account is starting to gain more power and maybe the power is shifting. So maybe the competition's got a hold of a a stronger champion than my person. Maybe I need to get a different champion, meaning multiple champions, or go, you know, even higher in the account. Johnny, have you ever said to your champion? I might be losing control. What's that, Johnny? Sorry. Have you ever said to your champion, I'm wondering if I picked the right horse? No. (laughs) No. Now now think about that for a second. All joking aside, if you have a champion. Right. And um they're actively selling on your behalf they have power and influence and they have a vested interest in your success i say it kind of tongue in cheek but i mean it you have every right to be able to say to the champion 
this is not this is not good for us. If you look at this criteria, the way that they're weighting this criteria or the way that they're focusing on this criteria by this person in your organization, you have to go square that away with that individual. And so I just wanted to make a point. I know I made it kind of tongue in cheek, but I think it's really important to hold your champion accountable to criteria. Well, usually what we're doing, um, I haven't ever really asked that question specifically, but what we're really doing is because we've been down the road so many times in these sales processes, we kind of know what's going to happen. So if you have a really good champion, you can ask about the next couple meetings, next stage, and you know what's going to happen. So let's say they're going into another meeting with five other people, and you know the competition's champion's going to be in the meeting. So now what you do is you role play with your champion on, here are the things that are absolutely going to come up. Let's talk about how you're going to handle these different objections about our product or our company or whatever the competition is going to bring up. So you're preparing your champion to make sure that they're able to handle all these other different stakeholders you know, inside the company. Great. Well, it makes yeah. a lot of sense too, because if you think about it, you we went back to champions. Champions sell on your behalf, right? They want you to win and you're just helping them to prepare or prepare them to be able to win. So to your point, John, about, you know, we've seen this, we've seen this rodeo before and we know yeah. what's going to happen. We're preparing them. Yeah, but you're so right. And you like you have to prepare the champion because if you think that you found the champion and then they're going to go into the they're going to go down this sales process with you, which, you know, what's going to come up as far as objections, as far as, you know, objections about your product, your company, whatever it might be. You have to role play with them and make sure that they can handle those issues. You don't want to send them into a meeting unprepared and then they get beat up. That's the end of your champion. They're not going to do that again. So it's up to us to keep them prepared. Hey, Johnny, one quick plug for you. I think that you do a great job in explaining what we're talking about today through a great story in the book that you wrote, The Qualified Sales Leader. So I'm just going to do a quick plug. Um, Get that book, The Qualified Sales Leader by John McMahon. And I just love the way that you give scenarios, just like you're given here today, uh, and you make it come to life in a, you know, in a, uh, in a scenario that carries out through the book. I think it's one of the best books I've ever read in business. Well done. Thank you, Cap. Appreciate yep. that. Hey, and let's spend <laughs> a little. I have to second that. By the way, I have to okay. second that in terms of the book. But anyway, going forward. Thank you. Appreciate it. Appreciate both of you. Can we spend a little time discussing like the methods to quantify the pain? So we've talked about why the criteria has to be set, how to do that. But let's talk about actually quantifying some of the pain in the discovery and scoping stages. Mm -hmm. So, again, I'm talking about these coaching sessions that I do, and this seems to be a real difficulty for for many people. So I'll just give you a couple of thoughts. The first one is you really need to show up with a compelling point of view. You know, meaning you've done your homework, you understand the customer and their use cases, you know, knowing their use cases gives you the ability to discuss it with the customer in a confident way. I just can't imagine showing up to a call and not really understanding, you know, what they do, what they're about, and you almost understand the patterns of what they're looking for. So after stating your point of view, there are many important things um, I'd also like to stress. First is you really need to be curious. You need to actually be interested in what they're doing. And show that you're an active listener. 
I think it's, it's important to you know pay close attention to what they say and you know, summarize, right? So that they understand that you have heard them properly. And then you know, listen actively for additional pain points. They usually come out. You know, it's funny, I like to you know ask probing questions, but you can start with a positive. I think a lot of times sales folks think they need to start with a negative. I always ask, how how well are things going right now? Tell me about what's going well. I'll tell you, human behavior takes us immediately to the negative. People are just going to describe, you know, what their problems are and what they want to fix. So ask probing questions, you know, to gain feedback and dig deeper into those use cases. And it's not good enough to stop, I'll say, with what I'll call qualitative questions where they're expressing what the the concern is. You really need to get into what kind of impact is that having on their business? Again, we're talking about connecting the technical features to the business impact. So a couple of questions that I love to go to is, you know, how is this impacting your business? Or how is this impacting your ability to drive revenue, reduce costs, or reduce risk? When you use those words, you're going to start resonating with the economic buyers if you're speaking to them. And if the technical buyer doesn't know how it's impacting the business, you're probably going to incent them to go out and understand what that connection is so that they can have you know, the conversations at a higher level. I guess the third thing I'll share is the, the customer success stories. It's it's imperative that you understand success stories, the case studies, the ones that are actually going to resonate with them in terms of the pain points that uh, that they're experiencing and that you've seen with other customers. Yes, but Anne, let's go back to the compelling point of view. I think it's so important for people to show up with a compelling point of view because you may not be 100% right. But what you've done is you've told the customer that I've done my homework on your organization and you and, and, and your use case. And now you have something tangible to talk about. They can tell you all the, all the reasons why it's wrong, but that's good because now you're understanding what the reality of the situation is. So you're, you're into the meat of the discussion immediately if you walk in with a compelling point of view. When you walk in cold, you're cold, the situation's cold, the conversation's cold, takes a really long time to get down to the meat of the conversation. Mm-hmm. So important. This is a, Thanks, Ann. This is an awesome uh, conversation. And I want to just go back to uh, one of the nuggets that you rolled over. And a lot of times when we talk to sellers, they're like, hey, I, I'm uncomfortable asking about the customer's problems or pain. And I just want to highlight what you just said. Um, I hear this every day from sellers. Um, I don't want to be negative, you know, and ask about negative consequences or negative implications. And I always say back to sellers, uh, you're not the one who's being negative. The the problem exists. The negative situation exists. And try that. What you said, I really loved where you said, why don't you start off with asking the customer? What do they like most about their current situation? And like you said, it's human nature. They're going to probably talk about, they don't want to mislead you because it's human nature. They're going to talk about things that are bothering them. So I, I really, really uh, think that's a uh, an awesome point. And then Johnny, you're talking about showing up and making sure that we demonstrate an understanding. I, I, I think that, you know, one of the key ways to do that is you should summarize and repeat back to the customer their pain points to ensure that we've accurately captured their concerns. Not only will this demonstrate our understanding, you know, and reinforce our commitment to solving their problems, it'll also prove to them that we listened. So 
you know, when when we listen to a customer and we understand their problem and we talk about it at force management, we are immediately attacking the seller deficit disorder. And what the seller deficit disorder means is when you're when you show up. Most buyers do not believe that you understand their business and they don't believe that you're going to listen very well. So doing the tips and techniques that John and Ann are talking about right here is that you're going to hit that seller deficit disorder right, you know, right away by summarizing what you heard, what you know, and what you've gleaned from them. So you're understanding their business and you're listening. Please write that down because it will give you a huge advantage. Most sellers don't overcome it. That's really good, Johnny. The other thing I've seen is people build a pain matrix. So, you know, many times we talk about the three whys, you know, why do I have to buy? Why do they have to buy? Why do they have to buy from you, which is your differentiators? And why do they have to buy now severity? So why do they have to buy is the pain? Why do they have to buy now is the severity of the pain? So this could be a perfect time when you're summarizing to build a pain matrix. So as you listen to the pain points, you summarize them into a pain matrix that ranks the identified pain points based on the severity of the pain and the urgency to solve that pain. And this, this like visual representation, even if you did it up on the whiteboard, really helps you as a salesperson and the customer prioritize what really needs to be solved and what needs to be solved right now. Um, I think hey, that's Johnny. really cool technique. Hey, Johnny, do you mind if I just build on that for a second? Sure. Sorry, Ann, I know we're going to roll into you in just a second. But um, one of my favorite stories of selling um, software before I you know, started force management was walking into an economic buyer's office where I was believing that we I was, you know, we were getting the order. We were signing the order and we were good to go. We did everything that we talked about on the call today. and. The economic buyer looked at me and said, Mr. Kaplan, we have a problem. And I was like, you know, I was pretty confident. I'm like, uh, what would that be? And he actually looked at me and said, your screen is blue. I swear to God, this happened to me. <laughs> and I, I looked I looked at the customer and I almost started laughing. Yeah. But I saw that they were serious about it. And Ann Gary did such a great job of training me at PTC, um, that I realized that, uh oh, he's serious about this. So when in doubt, ask a question. And I said, I, I was very, very lucky because I asked the question, look, the criteria has changed. And in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, the criteria has changed, blue screen. So what, what? And I said, so what in my own mind? And so I said, do you mind if I ask you, Mr. Economic Buyer, what problems does that create for you that the screen is blue versus a green screen? Because he was saying that the current screen that they're using, it was, it was all about a graphical user interface. It was our last, it was our competitor's last ditch effort is to go to the users of the software. This is a true story. And say, do you know? a really thin thread yeah. if it's just about the color of the screen. What kind right. of differentiator was that? Unique? <laughs> well, no. So, so Ann, what I wound up saying was I gathered myself. And this is really serious. So you got to be listening. You got to be ready. You got to be audible ready. And I gathered myself and I said, okay, 
I understand that you're saying that blue screen is important. So I didn't just knock it out. I just didn't laugh at it or laugh at the people using the technology. I did what Johnny said. I went to the whiteboard and I wrote up blue screen. And then my biggest differentiator back in the day was called um, uh, bidirectional, bidirectional associate. I almost lost it. Oh, bidirectional no, associativity. Really <laughs> yeah. But okay. So this was unique for us. And so I said, is it, and I stack ranked it like Johnny's talking about with a pain matrix. And I said, Mr. Economic Buyer, I understand what you mentioned about blue screen versus green screen and a potential inconvenience for the users to get used to a new graphical user interface. Would you say that's more important than a change made in design being automatically reflected in manufacturing by this criteria that we were talking about called bidirectional associativity? And he said, no, that's not even close. And so visually, I took that blue screen and I moved it on the board. I drew it an arrow down to the bottom of the decision criteria. And the feedback that I got by the customer was, uh, Mr. Kaplan, uh, that was pretty good. Um, I wish we had sellers that could do the same with our customers. So I guess what I'm saying is this is a, you know, what we're talking about is, you know, to look for change, but to be ready whenever a, a criteria changes and be able to, as John talks about, be able to go to some kind of pain matrix. You got to know what you do and why it's more important than what others do. So I just wanted to add to that, that, that point. We're going to, we're going to always remember the infamous green screen objection. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Hey, let's transition a little bit and talk about the role like the champion should play in trying to control the criteria. So, Anne, do you have any thoughts on that? I do. You know, we talked a lot about champions in one of our podcasts, but they they just play a critical or crucial role in controlling the decision criteria, obviously. You know, they have to be an internal advocate with influence in the account. We talked about that already. Uh, they need to support the solution and help navigate the decision-making process. And really help you, going back to what we talked about, also so many things we discussed here about formalizing decision criteria. If you don't get that, that decision criteria formalized, you just leave it open to all kinds of people getting involved. And you don't know, again, who has more influence and who is going to you know, have more weight. So here's how a champion can assist in setting the decision criteria, I think, for a point of view, is you know, work closely with them to identify and understand the decision criteria that will be used, obviously, and how they'll use that to determine the success of the point of the proof of value we talked about. They have to have a deep understanding of the organization's requirements. If they don't, then again, you're just leaving yourself open for other people to get in there and, and influence. They have to understand the pain points and the objectives. And I think by really leveraging you know, their insights, uh, you can align the POV objectives with the customer's decision-making process, again, by influencing that criteria, right, through what you do with your differentiation. Yeah, that's pretty clear. And the champion has to help you finalize and document the criteria. I think the other way that they need to help is influencing other decision-makers or, or stakeholders. If they're a true champion, they've established relationships, you know, with other key decision-makers or potential champions, within the account and they need to basically influence them on helping to set the criteria there, the relationships that they, you know, have built 
would allow them to advocate for the inclusion of certain criteria that align with your your differentiators and your solution strengths. Um, you know, they understand the motivations and the concerns of other decision makers, which makes them a really an invaluable resource in shaping the criteria. So just like any good seller, you know, we always had to get high and wide and you need a champion. And that's pretty indicative of a good champion is their ability to get high, high and wide in their own account to influence the decision makers inside the account. I love that, Johnny. That's so that's so right. And, you know, I think a true champion has influence in the account and they can use their influence with other decision makers to modify the criteria. And that should be our expectation of them. Um, but, Ann, I'm interested to know from you, digging in a little bit deeper, how else can the champion help us? You know, I think the critical thing, too, is that they're providing feedback and insights on how things are going. I mean, so often you have several people potentially working on something like this. And if you don't have the ability to get that kind of key information from someone with regards to you know, the progress, who's involved, how is it going, that's probably one of the most critical things I can say. And when you think about it, that it's, it's important to get the real-time feedback as well on the adjustments that are needed, because as people get into your solution, they're going to find different things they're interested in and in learning about. And if you get that real-time feedback about what they're looking for in terms of you, you changing, right, the blue screen, green screen, yeah. we'll go back to that. But also, again, I think we've talked a lot about this. I just want to reinforce it is if, if things are changing, how does that attach to the business outcomes that they're looking for? I like that. And, and so so when you say provide feedback, do you mean feedback to the company stakeholders and also feedback to you as a salesperson? Yeah, no, I mean both. That's a that's a real good call out. I mean both, because when you think about it, they need to be able to use their influence to discuss you know, how things are being successfully met in terms of requirements to the internal folks. And, you know, with their peers and how things are going. But I think they also need to provide, you know, you with positive and negative feedback, you know, in real time as, as one participating in this. And, and I'm going to enunciate this. I want to get the negative feedback early. If I don't get it, I have nothing I can do at the very end of it. So a champion is willing to share the bad news or, you know, it might call it bad news. The things that you could actually improve early. They're willing to share that with you because they want you to win. And I think so often salespeople think that someone's not a champion if they're sharing, you know, something that might be negative. They are because they want you to win. Well, they want to win because at this point, when you're doing the POV, the way that I've looked at it, you're you're walking hand in hand with them at the POV. They they've now decided as a champion, I'm putting my the influence that I do have in this account, my reputation, I'm putting it on the line. So typically they are going to give you bad news really quickly because they want you to resolve that bad news quickly so that they look good. They don't want to look bad. Remember the definition of a champion, you know, they're pretty cagey, they're pretty foxy and they don't want to, you know, destroy their reputation on a product or a salesperson that's really not prepared. So they're going to give it to you pretty quickly is, is my experience. You guys, you guys are absolutely crushing this topic and keep going on uh, the role of the champion. Is there anything else we should be thinking about? Yeah, we should probably talk more about, you know, managing stakeholder, you know, expectations. We think about the champion needs to act as a bridge between your organization and their own, right? 
And they can manage those stakeholder expectations by clarifying the decision criteria, making sure everybody's on the same page, formalizing, et cetera. I think another thing they do is, is they help to manage the situation by introducing you to other evaluators, right, in the, in the situation. Ensuring that all parties are aligned when you go through the evaluation process is a, is a big part of it. And that's why they need to introduce you to some of the other evaluators, because you need to make sure, you know, there's alignment there. And then finally, addressing any concerns or challenges, you know, they may have during, during the point of view. We talked a lot about that, but that's, that's a big part of their role is managing all of the folks in this, you know, point of view. Because you think about it, we're really driving towards a collective yes. It's not just the champion that's saying yes. It's all the people that are participating you'd like to get a collective mm. yes from. And you guys... You guys really crushed this topic today. Thanks for allowing me to tag along. So let me just do a, a, a quick uh, summary on this topic that we've just been talking about with champions. So the champion's role in controlling the decision criteria is the way you guys are describing it is, is mission critical. So they bring a deep understanding of the customer's organization. They have influence with decision makers and they can align the POV objectives, uh, you know, with with their needs um, by working closely with champions, we can effectively shape the decision criteria and significantly increase the chances of a successful evaluation of our solution. One last point I want to make today. Excellent. I want I want all the technical folks that are listen to our podcast. We don't always do a really good job of kind of, you know, sometimes they get some notes from the, you know, uh, uh, engineers or solution architects, and, and they say to me, you know, how do I plug myself into, um, you know, the sales process or the conversation? And I think this topic today, decision criteria, is one that you can absolutely not only plug into, but in many cases, you can own it. I don't want to take that away from the the, the seller, but I want uh, I want to uh, really validate our technical friends that are listening to this podcast. Decision criteria is a great place for you to really help the sales team. What I used to, I love doing when I'd go on a forecast, I'd have the technical people on the forecast as well. I'd ask what the decision criteria is, and then I wouldn't ask the seller. I would ask the, the technical person. I would say, how do you feel about that? Number one, is that the correct decision criteria? Number two, can we win with that criteria? Many times there was, you know, you can just get it set up that it's okay to discuss these things because we're all trying to win. But technical people sometimes are hesitant. But once they found that they had a voice, they would say, well, actually, the one thing that we're talking about is like the, you know, the critical differentiator. The competition can actually do that, too. And so everybody learns. And yeah. so if you're listening and you're technically inclined, decision criteria is a great place for you to plug in. Yeah, that's really good, Johnny. And you have anything else you want to add? No, I think we've done a nice job of covering off. I mean, if people just do maybe 50, 60 percent of what we <laughs> talked about, we're going to be driving some great POVs and making sure that people are buying after them. That's the that's the critical part is they're actually right. acting on fire. Yeah, it was a really good discussion on decision criteria. It's a lot of really good points for people to consider. 
you know, next time they're going through discovery and going through scoping, coming in with a compelling point of view, asking the right questions, probing questions, active listening, curiosity, all the things you talked about, Ann. So thanks again once and once again for, you know, all the value that you brought to the podcast. Really appreciate you. Thanks crushed to my cousin. What's that? She crushed she always, it. She always kills it. Did you ever <laughs> hey, know her not to kill anything? She I knows. worked with some of the finest. Those of you on the phone. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> and thanks to my talented partner, John Kaplan. And thanks to everyone for listening to another episode of the Revenue Builders podcast. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com. 